to um, be able to share with a group like this from so many nations is a, a wonderful opportunity, this conference, where we can all help each other to be better equipped and more effective in the work of evangelism. So my task tonight is to set up the, the issue of persuasion and evangelism and help you to understand the grounding of why we are moving to that phrase rather of persuasive evangelism rather than apologetics, which has all sorts of complex uh, connotations. Can you hear me at the back? Am I talking loudly enough? Yeah. Thank you very much. Do wave or throw something at me if that's not the case. Well, can I start by saying just a little bit about myself? I became a Christian 50 years ago, so I'm quite decrepit. My parents were not Christian, and I met Christians during my teens, and they impressed me. Uh, they were kind, they practiced hospitality, they made me feel welcome, they involved me in what they were doing. And the more I heard listening to them, the more I became intrigued. And so at the age of 17, I thought, I've got to sort out this Christianity business. With very little background understanding of, of Christianity, I went and bought myself a modern English copy of the New Testament. And I said, I'm going to read a chapter a night. Last thing at night, before I put the light out, I'll just read a chapter. And I'll go right through it, quite simple. By the time I've got to the end, I will know whether this is for me or whether this is for the bin. When I got to the end of the first read through, I had far more questions than I'd started with, but they were, of course, different questions. So I just had no choice but to do it whole exercise again. Nine months after that, I still couldn't make up a decision. But what I could see was that the resurrection was absolutely fundamental to the whole thesis. But who can believe that dead people are raised? So I started the third time. At the end of the third time, I was satisfied that Jesus had been raised from the dead and that I'd have to face him in eternity. So I, I got on my knees and did the only decent and appropriate thing. <laughs> Now, the moment I became a Christian, I had a very deep conviction that I had to devote my life to explaining the gospel to people in the way that I would like to be told. And I soon realized this is actually Christ's golden rule. You put yourself in the other person's place. It applies to the whole of life, but it applies particularly to evangelism. We must somehow stand where they're standing, understand the world the way they see it culturally, morally, intellectually, and deal with their problems. So to equip myself for this task, I attended several evangelism training courses. One involved using, learning a sequence of memory verses. Another involved the bridge diagram. One majored on church-based initiatives with guest services, inviting non-believers to come in and sing hymns, say prayers, and even stand and recite the Apostles' Creed before the sermon, which I thought was frankly daft. Other groups taught other things, but at each stage in the process, I came away from these courses thinking, this is not that. And I wasn't quite sure what that was, but there was something atmospheric about what was going on in the New Testament, which was a mile away from all these courses that were going on. After being a Christian about 18 months, I went to medical school. 
And um, we organized evangelistic meetings once a week where students were invited to come and hear a speaker, a surgeon, a senior doctor um, who would talk about the Christian faith. And about 20 or 30 would come. There were only five Christians in our year. And one afternoon, when there's something like 150, this sort of number of students were gathered in the student common room uh, after lunch, uh, before the, se evening, uh, the afternoon session started, a girl asked me a question about Christianity. So, as well as sit down and we'll tackle the question. And I started to answer it. And in no time at all, somebody else butted in. I said, oh, but you can't say that. I said, well, uh, the, the reason I say that is, and so I s started engaging, and then another one joined in, and then another one joined in. And soon they were sitting on the floor, they were pulling up chairs, they were standing around. I had about 20 people, and there was I, a new Christian, completely out of my depth, not knowing what I was doing. And the thing really hummed, and I had a very deep conviction that this is that. This is what I read about in Capernaum. This is what was going on in Thessalonica. This is what happening in Corinth and, um, and at Ephesus. This dynamic engagement with the gospel as being a really hot issue. After about half an hour of this, uh, a bell rang, uh, meaning the afternoon lecture was about to start, and people gathered up their things, headed to the doors, leaving me sitting next to the girl who asked the question. And I apologize, I said, I'm sorry, I ha haven't answered your question. Actually, I can't even remember what your question was. And she said, it doesn't matter. I said, no, you asked a, a, a good question. No, it doesn't matter now. So as it sounded, I thought this was my sort of rudeness of being distracted. She said, the question I asked you is what it meant, means to be born again. It doesn't matter now. I just have been. <laughs> and Mary and I are still in touch. She's in Australia. She's been in medical practice there. Uh, she and her husband have been actively involved in Christian mission. Their daughter's been a missionary in Indonesia for several years. And they come and stay with us when they, the rare occasions they come to the UK. Mary's conversion had such repercussions in the student world because they knew what she was like. They knew <laughs> she was a typical fallen person. She wasn't uh, lewd or drunken or anything like that. She just was abrasive and self-confident and whatever, and they saw a change in her. What's happened to Mary? Everyone was wanting to know what's happened to Mary. And we saw a steady trickle of people becoming Christians over the next two years. So that after two years, we had... In our year of 96, about 20 of them were professing Christians. I remember asking the um, president of the student union what she thought about Christ. She was a self-confident atheist. And suddenly she welled up in tears and said, how can I not believe? Five of my closest friends have become Christians. They found a joy in life they never had before. They found meaning and purpose in life. Words that... I, I couldn't forget, they were written unto my soul. Uh, I couldn't work out who our five closest friends were because so many had become Christians that it was actually <laughs> difficult to try and work out. <coughs> so what can we learn from all this? Come with me to Thessalonica, and we're looking at the opening verses of Acts 17, the first nine verses, and let's see what Paul was actually doing. And you'll note, first of all, 
in verse 2 that it says, as his normal custom was. This was his standard approach. He wasn't doing anything clever in Thessalonica that he didn't, didn't do in other places. There was nothing exceptional about this. This was Paul doing what Paul did. And he started in the synagogue. Now, we need to take careful note of this. Uh, not only uh, were the first Christians themselves all Jewish, but until the conversion of Cornelius and the subsequent events in Antioch, they only shared the gospel with Jews. Now, this is explicitly stated in Acts 11.19. Widely scattered after the persecution, uh, in the persecution following the martyrdom of Stephen, we're told that they gave their message only to the Jews. And it wasn't until some men from the island of Cyprus and Cyrene in North Africa went to Antioch and began to talk to the Greeks about the gospel, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And we're told that a great number believed. And then Barnabas went to Tarsus to, to find Saul and brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And the disciples, Luke says, were first called Christians in Antioch. Why? Because they weren't Jews. There hadn't been any Christians until then. They're all Messianic Jews. But now they couldn't call these people. Uh, they had to find a new name. The, 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 these weren't Jews. These were, were pagan, converted pagans. So they were called Christians. So the first stage of the Christian mission was entirely to the Jews and those God-fearers who were more of them in a minute, who attended the synagogues. And this went on probably for 10 years. We don't know precisely the dates, but it was that sort of period of time, because in chapter 12 we're told that at this time King Herod put James, the, the, the brother of John, to death and arrested Peter. And after Peter's escape, Herod went to Caesarea where he suddenly died. And Herod's death is recorded not just by Luke, but by Josephus, and is dated at 44 AD. So for some 10 years, it's now we've now got good evidence that Christ was crucified in 33 AD. There's a wonderful new book on the mystery of, of the, the, the Last Supper uh, by Colin, Sir Colin Humphreys which um, argues very strongly that 33 AD is the only possibility for the death of Christ. So we've got this 10-year period when all the early Christians were Messianic Jews until these people came from Cyprus and North Africa. Now, the difficulty for us in the task that we face is that most of the evangelism recorded in the Acts is focused on the Jews where the Messianic Jews appeal to the Jewish scriptures to proclaim the Jewish Messiah to the Jewish people. We must think outside that box. It constrains us very seriously. And that's why Paul's preaching to the farmers at Lystra and his preaching to the philosophers in Athens is so crucial to try to understand what it means to be outside that environment. The pagan Greeks knew nothing about the Old Testament and its promises, and in neither of those situations did Paul major on the scriptures. 
but he spoke from their own culture to their own understanding, and that is the model we've got to work at in our different and very diverse cultures that we represent here. And this has immediate implications for the way we use the Bible. Many evangelists assume the authority of the Bible in their preaching, expecting non-Christians to believe what the Bible says is true. But the early Christians never proclaimed a book. They proclaimed the historic person of Christ. To the Jews, they referred to the Old Testament scriptures, promises about the coming Messiah. But they didn't ask the Gentiles to believe a book, but to trust a person. And every time we say, the Bible says, we're a fact putting the cart before the horse in our evangelism. Belief in the Bible as the word of God follows on from trusting in Christ. And if you put the cart in front of the horse, and you have the horse pushing it from behind, it's, it's very slow progress. So the way we talk about because they didn't talk about the Bible, I mean, they didn't have the New Testament as the Bible, and they talked about the scriptures. And we can talk about the scriptures of the, the various documents, but diverse documents, if we're talking about what Paul said, or what John said, or what Isaiah said. We can talk about and quote from the various scriptures, but they stand on their own authority. Now, our argument is not a circular argument. We're not asking people to trust Christ because of the Bible uh, and to trust the Bible because of Christ so that each justifies the other. We're presenting a linear argument from history. We trust the historic Christ on the evidence of history and, we'll, and he will teach us to trust the scriptures as a consequence. Now, after the breakthrough in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas were sent to Cyprus and then Perga and Pamphylia and Pisidia and on to Lystra and Derbe and Attalia and then back to Antioch where we read in Acts 14 they reported that all that God has done through them and how he's opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. This was the great breakthrough. This is Paul's first missionary journey and it happened seemingly between 46 and 48 AD. I find it very helpful to try and get some markers down in thinking of the progress of this. That's an enormously long time before the door opened to the Gentiles and um, the, their labors were eventually greatly rewarded. Now, such was the historic dispersion of the Jews into communities across the Roman Empire that most of these places had synagogues. People attended the synagogues, presumably, because they were disillusioned by the trivialities, the vanities, and the flagrant immoralities of the Greek, Roman, Persian, Egyptian, man-made gods. And they found a much more serious monotheistic understanding of the moral creator God being presented by the Jews in the synagogues. And these people came to understand the Jewish scriptures and were clearly then well prepared to understand the gospel. So we have three main groups. We have the Jews. We have the God-fearing pagan Greeks. Uh, I'm sorry, we have the God-fearing Greeks and then we have the, the pagan Greeks. And it was the Jews and the God-fearers with their synagogue bases all over the Roman world that became the launching pad for the gospel into the pagan culture around them. 
So come back to Thessalonica. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, this word confused me, um, and I think it must confuse a lot of people because, in, in English anyway, um, that seems to be the word that's repeatedly used to describe what Paul was doing. It sounds a very academic word, as though he was giving a, a formal lecture to rather intellectual people. Um, but this verb to reason which is used uh, of Paul in Thessalonica and Athens, Corinth, and Ephesus. The underlying word is dialegami, which is our word for dialogue. In other words, he wasn't giving a monologue, but was engaging in two-way conversations wherever he went, in discussions with whoever was present. Um, in the marketplace, in the synagogues, it didn't matter where, where he was. He would start in the synagogues, he'd get kicked out, would go somewhere else. <laughs> Um, and neither did he expect them to believe what he was saying without question. And why should he expect to be believed without question? Now, as soon as we get this picture of a two-way discussion into our minds, a lot of other things fall into place. Verse 3 tells us that he was explaining his message. We've got a lot of explaining to do. And you explain things when you're not being properly understood. But you only know, I, I mean, I haven't a clue whether you're able to understand what I'm saying, but if we talk back and you started feeding back to me, I'd soon get the idea that, you know, you haven't understood a word of it or, or whatever. And, and then I try and re-explain it a different way. That's what we do the whole time, explaining things. Explaining happens in a dialogue situation. Their misunderstandings were revealed, and it's wisely said that it's not what we say that matters. It is what they hear. And we have to test what they're hearing to see if they're understanding us. The next verb that's used to describe Paul at work is that he was proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, Paul is speaking here to Jews from the scriptures. They presumably did not believe what he was saying, and he had to show them from the scriptures that these things were in fact prophesied. In other words, they had legitimate doubts, which were revealed in this two-way conversation. And Paul had to identify the doubts and address them in the dialogue context. So there are three distinct features of Paul's evangelism here that we need to get hold of. He was telling them things they didn't know, he was explaining things they didn't understand, and he was giving them evidence for things they did not think were true. In dialogue, he was addressing their ignorance, their confusions, and their doubts. And in our small group work, I hope we are this weekend going to bear all those things in mind. It's not just what we need to tell them, but how do we explain it in terms that will be understood, and what are the doubts that will immediately rise in their minds that we need to address in the way we present the truth of the gospel to them? So that is, is a key task as we discuss John's gospel this week. Now, what did all this amount to? If you look at verse 3, Paul says, this Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. 
a little sidetrack. I remember doing a dialogue with a group of students. We had about 20 people packed into a room. I gave a very short talk to, just to provoke discussion, uh, a rather abrupt summary of the gospel. I said, come on, what questions does that do? And the questions started flowing all over the place. And we went on for two hours dealing with all the issues that you can expect and that you come up with yourself. I felt the evening really, really hummed. And um, the next day, he phoned me up to thank me for coming. And he was really excited because one of them had said that he had come to church on Sunday. And he said, now he can hear the gospel preached. What does he think I've been doing for two hours the night before if it wasn't preaching the gospel? He had got a view of, being, of preaching, of being in a pulpit, six foot above contradiction, um, where there's no opportunity to come back and to ask questions and discuss the issues. And this model of, of preaching uh, hampers us enormously. Um, it, it, this is what Paul calls proclaiming the gospel, cheek by jowl, rough and tumble, engaging in dialogue uh, wherever the people are. And Luke goes on record, verse 4, that some of the Jews, a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and not a few prominent women were converted. He doesn't say that. He says they were persuaded. That's what he was trying to do. He was trying to persuade them. That is his part in evangelism. That's what he saw the job that he had to do. God had another part to do. It is God alone who can take a persuaded mind and cause that person to get on their knees and confess him as Lord and live their lives differently. But they're not going to do that until they've first been persuaded. So we must understand what our part of the job is and what God's part is. And God honors the proclamation of the gospel when we present it truthfully in a way that can be believed and people put their trust in him. So we have five verbs here describing what Paul's doing when he was teaching the gospel. He was dialoguing, explaining, evidencing, proclaiming, and persuading. So what then is persuasion? And as you'll have gathered, I think this is the key ingredient that's been missing in the church right across Europe, certainly in Britain, and in so much uh, proclamation of the gospel. Persuasion doesn't come into it for so many people. I'm sure that isn't true amongst you, um, and things, the, the reasons you're here is to work on these very things. So what does it mean to persuade something, someone that something is true? Do you believe everything that you're told? Did you check out the details of this conference? Or did you just take it as read? How confident were you that it would take place? As you set out, did you consider it might not happen? That it could be cancelled, that the venue might be changed, or that you'd booked the wrong flight, or got the wrong month, uh, the sort of thing I'm well capable of, or that the efficient Lindsay Brown might not be entirely reliable in all the information that's been sent to us, or that an earthquake might destroy the hotel before we got here. In other words, none of us knew beyond doubt that this conference would take place, but it didn't stop us from setting out. Now, all our knowledge is like that. Outside of mathematics and strict logic, all knowledge, including our knowledge of history, science, theology, 
All our knowledge is provisional. It's true and certain only providing certain other things are reliable, like our rationality, our memory, our eyesight, our sources of information, our emails, the state of shifting tectonic plates, and much else. Yet despite the provisionality of our knowledge, we still speak about knowing things and knowing them with sufficient confidence and clarity to take action in the light of them. We do set out on journeys. We do believe other people's promises, even if they've disappointed us in the past. And as we learned about the conference, it was like adding weights onto a weighing scale. Initially, we weren't persuaded to come, but then we got a bit more information and we found out other people who were going to be here and the scales begin to turn and they reach a tipping point when we said, yeah, I, I'm going to be there. I'm going to pitch in for this. This sounds really good. I want to be there. We weren't persuaded initially. More information brought us to this tipping point. And that is what persuasion is about. It doesn't, they're not coming to final knowledge with the wonder of our arguments, but they get to a stage where the whole thing looks different in the light of what he's saying. That Jesus obviously did exist. There really was a problem about his body and his resurrection. He, the, these things were prophesied uh, in previous centuries. Whatever the issues were for them, people move into a new position where they begin to take action on the basis of the evidence they've received. And so it is with the gospel. St. Paul wrote that now we know in part. Eventually we shall know fully. Now we see but a poor reflection, as in a mirror dimly, and then we shall know face to face. Just getting the story of the gospel from an unreliable source is not enough. People need to probe the story to see if it makes sense, weigh up the evidence and see if it's true. And having done all that, many will still remain unconvinced. We become persuaded then when the balance of probabilities shifts in the direction of it being true. But we still, setting out in faith, live with our doubts. We have to carry them. And sometimes they fade into insignificance. Sometimes they well up and seem overwhelming. It'll all be always like that all the, the days of your life. You'll have questions thrown at you that strike you very deeply. How do I fit that in with God's plans for their lives? And how? I don't know. I've just got to press on. <laughs> you know, there are great mysteries, great pains and difficulties. We live with our doubts, but we have the greater certainties and we must be convinced of them. When Paul made his defense before King Agrippa and the governor Festus in Caesarea, recorded by Luke in Acts 26, Festus interrupted him. He shouted, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you insane. Paul said, no, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. And then he adds, and the king, there was Festus, the governor who had made the challenge, and the King Agrippa was there. He said, the king's familiar with these things. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice. This wasn't done in a corner. 
And he said then to King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe the prophets. And Agrippa said to Paul, do you think in a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Have you ever noticed that verse before? It's lovely. You, you, if you read it quickly, you miss the shrug of the shoulders. Long or short, Paul says, as you like. It doesn't matter whether it takes a long time or a short time. And, so, you know, for me, I, I had three years of wrestling quietly with it. I was chatting to somebody earlier today who has uh, spent a full year wrestling with the gospel before. It We've got to be patient with people. They're coming at it from their different positions. There are lots of issues to think through. Um, whether it's long or short, uh, Paul said, I pray to God that not only you, but everyone listening to me today will become as I am. And Luke says that Festus and Agrippa then left together, and Agrippa said to Festus as they left, this man could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. Agrippa was in no doubt what Paul was trying to do. He was trying to persuade him. And uh, it seems, I think, that he was well on the way to being persuaded. He was feeling the force of what Paul was saying. So at Ephesus... We read in Acts 19, verse 8, for three months, Paul was arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. That's a great phrase to describe New Testament evangelism. Does it describe your evangelism? Can it be said of what you do and what you're seeking to do that you're arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God? Because some people don't like the word argue. They think that argue means you get heated and you start throwing things and behaving badly. It leads to a row. Well, let me give you an, let's pick an argument with you now. I want to give you something to really get your teeth into. If A equals B and B equals C, then A, I'll have you know, equals C. Stuff that one. Makes you mad, doesn't it? That is a simple, logical argument. That's what we're to do. We're to reason our way through these things and explain them. There's nothing heated or bad-tempered in an argument. An argument is just a matter of rational, using our minds carefully and wisely and developing a legal case or a historic case or a scientific case or whatever in, in what we're trying to do. Of course, the result of an argument can leave people mad. And that's what Paul found. He argued reasonably about the gospel. A silversmith called Demetrius complained, this fellow Paul has convinced a large number of people here in Ephesus that man-made gods are not gods at all. Our trade will lose its name. The temple of the goddess Artemis will be discredited. What happened? Well, they had a riot. And what happened in Ephesus happened in Corinth. We read in Corinth, and um, in my book, which... Um, Lindsay has kindly mentioned, I have put a chapter in the difference between Athens and Corinth. Corinth has caused much misunderstanding, which undermines very much the, the essence of what I'm trying to say. But there are all sorts of issues there. Uh, Stefan is, a, is an expert on the subject, but there are others who have given serious thought to this. But Corinth is just the same as, he wasn't doing anything different in Corinth. What we read there in, in Acts 18, verse 4, is that every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks 
just the same story as elsewhere. And Paul was attacked there, and he was dragged before the proconsul Gallio. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. And Paul was doing the same in Corinth that he was doing in Athens. And what effect did it have in Thessalonica? It caused a riot there. They rushed into Jason's house in search of Paul. They dragged him before the city officials, saying, these men, of course, trouble all over the world. And they've now come here. And they're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. And that was in AD 49, just five years into the Gentile mission. And meanwhile in Rome, in that same year, according to the Roman historian Suetonius, the Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome due to repeated disturbances instigated at the name of someone called Crestus. And that's generally believed to be a mistake on Suetonius's part. He meant Christus. Because the same event, the expulsion of the Jews from Rome, was witnessed too by Luke when he introduces these fascinating figures, Priscilla and Aquila, who come so often in the New Testament documents. And Paul met them in Corinth, who had recently been expelled from Rome under the edict of the emperor Claudius. As a result of this action, Paul was able to write in AD 57, which is only a few years further on. And this is, have you ever noticed this is the first thing he says in the great letter to the Romans? He does a formal introduction, and then he says, First of all, I want to thank you that you're, thank God that your faith is being proclaimed all over the world. In trying to end the trouble the gospel was causing in Rome, Claudius compounded it greatly and scattered them everywhere. In that year of AD 57, which is when he wrote to the Romans, a lawyer named Tertullus prosecuted the case against Paul, and Luke recorded his statements to Felix. We found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is the ringleader of this Nazarene sect. And finally, at the end of the book of Acts, we leave Paul under house arrest in Rome, preaching the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus boldly and without hindrance. From morning to evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus. And some were convinced, and others would not believe. Pilate had asked Jesus if he was a king. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would be fighting. And the Jews shouted at Pilate, so if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked them. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests replied. Isn't that dreadful? It's like us responding and said we have no higher authority in our lives than Donald Trump or Mrs. Clinton. By AD 64, just 30 years after Christ's death and resurrection, the Emperor Nero was interrogating large numbers of Christians in Rome, soaking them with olive oil and setting light to them on crosses in his gardens. 
And for the next 250 years, there were repeated persecutions under the emperors until the Emperor Constantine eventually bowed his knee to Christ. And Christian civilization was then allowed to flourish in Europe and have free reign to have its influence over the next 1600 years. But you may have noticed that that time has now passed. Europe is now a post-Christian continent. And our task is to turn the tide and persuade a new generation of students to put their hope and their faith in the risen Christ. Amen. Amen.